0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: If you've ever walked through Westdale Village, and I'm assuming most, many, all of the people listening probably have, uh, right by McMaster, you have surely passed by, and you've probably gone into at some point, Brian Prince Booksellers. The independent bookstore has been on that site in that Westdale area since 1989. But on Thursday, we found out today, they announced it is closing. And when they announced it, they put a email out, I understand, to a bunch of their clients, to their customers, and also something went up on Facebook. Uh, This is what part of what they wrote. There are many unique factors that have led to this decision, and it has not been made lightly or in haste. This is not about the death of the physical book or independent book selling. There will always be books printed and those who love to devour their pages, and there will always be independent bookstores fighting to shine a light on the wonderful treasure trove of books published each season that might otherwise be overlooked or underappreciated. That was by Carrie Cranston Reimer, who took over from Brian Prince himself in 2011. Here's the thing. While it is always very sad when a small, successful, beloved, and it really was beloved, business closes, I got to admit that I was kind of shocked today when I started thinking about it, that this particular store has been able to survive as long as it did. Not because of anything wrong this store was doing, but because you may have noticed that the world of books these days is run by giant conglomerates and huge stores and online buying, and it seems that this is kind of flying in the face of that trend. Marvin Ryder joins us from the DeGroote School of Business. Sir, thanks for doing this today.
2: Always a pleasure.
1: How, uh, before we start, how was your time in the Around the Bay yesterday?
2: <laughs> I did not go yet. Oh, today Marvin! Because because at this time of the year we've only got two weeks left in the school term, and I have plenty to keep me busy at McMaster.
1: Okay, well, I'll will accept that as a reasonable explanation slash excuse. Uh, I didn't run either, so I'm I'm equally uh, you know guilty absolutely. How did Brian Prince Bookstore Bookseller last this long in this environment that it seems like it's just swimming upstream so badly?
2: Well, you know, uh, Scott, I give the example to to students and others all the time that the, people make the false assumption that we're all out looking for the biggest bargain going, and so we'll shop whether it's online or at a store that can buy in mass volume and give us those low prices. The reality is that at least a significant chunk of us are prepared to not necessarily go for the lowest price when you can give me great service, and this is how independent stores that don't have the buying power whether you be an independent coffee shop or a donut maker or in this case a bookseller this is how you fly in the face of the competition you say i can't match you on price so i'm going to smother you in great service and brian prince from the moment it opened in 1989 was a celebration of the written word not only was it a bookstore where i guess i could do a transaction but if i was looking for a rare volume whether it was new or old they would try to hunt it down for me In the case of of the most recent iteration of Owners in 2016, they expanded the space so they could have book readings, they could have meetings, community engagement, and really promote the written word. And so it's more than a bookseller in the community. It became an integrated part of the community maybe say it a little differently, you remember it was just a few weeks ago that the anarchists marched down Lock Street, and then you saw one of the oddest things you have to admit you've ever seen. You saw people out supporting retailers. Nobody marched in favor of Sears. Nobody marched in favor of Target. But there's something about a local retailer that gives you that extraordinary service that rings in your heart, and we've seen that now a lot here in Hamilton.
1: Is that Okay, there's a couple things you said there that I want to get to, but just with the last part, First, is that something that we we love these retailers because they're community or is it because we all somehow deep down in our heart have this underdog thing that we want to root for the underdog and this is the underdog, therefore I must rise up and protect that like with yeah. Donut Monster or whatever else on Lock Street.
2: I don't I don't think it's necessarily the underdog. If you were just an independent store but didn't go beyond that again, you had a transactional relationship with that company i don't think it would be there it's when you have to go above and beyond the mile that brian prince booksellers if you were walking your dog in the neighborhood they had a bowl of water out there for your dog they were they were thinking about more than simply selling books and again if i think a donut monster or lock street many of these companies are more than just making a transaction with you and that's how local retail fights back it's something that the big guys can never match basically call it your heart they can never match the heart and soul of these small retailers
1: because one of the things that I found really interesting about this today was as you were thinking about the book sale, I can understand when you talk about service and I, I I, was guessing you were going to say something along those lines and when I was thinking about service, if I have to go get a pair of shoes that have to be fitted properly to me because I have a collapsed arch or something, I understand clearly that going to a place that under, that's good at that is better than buying it from a store where nobody knows what they're doing. There's a 12 year old kid selling me my shoes or right, exactly. skates or hockey equipment. Or if I decide I want to buy a really good burger instead of going to one of the fast food places, I'm going to pay a lot more, but okay, I'll go to a small place. But books, the the product here literally could be purchased in a thousand websites, all of them for cheaper, for the exact same thing. And so that was one of the reasons this particular store, this particular business was so intriguing to me because the product you're buying, there's there's no fitting, there's no uniqueness it's exactly what you could have bought elsewhere
2: well that's assuming you knew what you wanted going true enough it. so i'll call that transactional here's the newest book by jk rowling the you know harry potter and the pursuit of excellence or whatever it is the new book is out there and you can get it anywhere so yeah in that case i don't need their help but let's suppose i'm trying to look for that special book for that special someone and i'm really needing some advice again i forgive me but i go to chapters i've got that same 12 year old waiting on me there just get through the line and get to the other side you go to brian prince and they took it to heart it was a mission for them to find the right kind of books for your needs and they they went that extra mile. You're listening
0: to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML.
1: We're talking about Brian Prince specifically, but we're also talking about the concept, these small independent stores, whether it's books, whether it's anything else, that are now running headfirst into some of these massive conglomerates selling the same thing. And just before the break, Marvin was talking about how service, if you're going to survive, that's where you're probably going to do it by being able to out-service the other people. But Marvin, there's another thing, though, that made this really tricky, I think, recently for Brian Prince. And that would be the fact that they, if you wanted to buy what they were selling, you no longer even needed today to buy anything because of Kobo. You can download it off your computer now. The challenges for a place like this in an industry like this must have been immense that you're not only trying to draw people in who want to buy a real hardcover, hard copy book, but there are other ways to get that book, all of which keep you out of their store. Mm-hmm.
2: And and to take that just a half step further, some of their big chain competitors like a Chapters or an Amazon, they'll sell you an e-book just as quickly as they'll sell you a physical right. book. So they were able to diversify. And, and I think there was some of that going on at Brian Prince. I think they, they were able to get you some electronic copies, although they were really celebrating the the printed word. And I'm going to tell you again, Scott, that there are some people who, who go through books, again, I suppose, almost like... Uh, Uh, Tissue. You know, they they read something and voraciously they'll get soft cover books or or Kobo and they'll read 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 and they don't want to retain them. There are other people who actually build libraries who who keep the books, read them again, cherish them, and that was the market they were going after. So again, if you if you're just viewed books as a transactional thing, what's the latest bestseller from Robert Ludlum or what's the the latest bestseller from uh, Sue Granger or something like Sue Grafton? Excuse me. Then yes, you could get it anywhere they were looking for people who treasured that written word. And something about Westdale, something about parts of Hamilton, there are still those people there. So learning your niche, really understanding who your buyers are, and then catering to them, that's another key to success.
1: The word niche, I I think that may be the the biggest thing here. You cannot, I'm guessing, if you are a small independent retailer, whether it's donuts, whether it's books, whether it's music, whatever else, I'm assuming you have to set your your target or your expectations after that niche, you can't be going after the whole thing. You've got to go after a very specific slice of that pie if you're going to have that kind of place.
2: Exactly. And, and I don't think this failure should be viewed as a problem with the niche. In other words, the niche shrinking too much, there's too small of to a market. I think that was still possible. I, I don't like to speculate on these kinds of things, but uh, one of the two sisters who own Brian Prince had to step away in 2016, and, and I'm wondering if there might have been some health challenges in there. Oddly enough, get this, if it had been a financial challenge, let's suppose they needed twenty-five or $50,000, maybe even a bank wouldn't give it to them. Brian Prince is the kind of business that you could do crowdfunding mm-hmm. for, and the money would come because people want them to survive. The people who love that niche, who are in that niche, would do anything for them. And it's also possible, I hate to do it like this to you, this story may not be done. You know, I, I can think of the Westdale Theater that went through something, and they said, well, we just can't keep it going anymore, and we're going to let it go. And we saw community people suddenly rally. Whatever has caused Brian Prince to close the door seems to have happened very quickly. It's possible they couldn't find a savior on their own, but now with the publication of this story, even us talking about it, before this week is over, I would not be the least bit surprised to see some Hamiltonians rally and say, we want to keep this institution going. It's something you see in these small independent stores that you would never see for a Target or a Sears.
1: Is there a generational component of this? Because it seems a lot of the new businesses that are falling into this category, and again, I'll use Donut Monster because it's been so much in the news, so up front. It seems as though, and I may be wildly generalizing, I hope not, but that millennials, for whatever reason, are willing to support places like this, spend more money on a donut or more money on a book or something for this experience, whereas baby boomers, gen xers, maybe it's cuz they've got bigger mortgages or they have got retirement coming up or kids in university whatever, they seem more frugal, they want to find the better deal. It seems as though there's a generational divide here.
2: You know, you, and you may you may be partially correct, but I think Brian Prince fills a void here of of again, multi-generations in the sense that there are many Hamiltonians who can remember their parents taking them to Brian Prince. To, to instill that love of reading, and even though maybe today they don't read as much as they once did, or they promise themselves they'll read more they'll they 'll have a warm, fuzzy memory about that day, almost a rite of passage, when they went in and got a book or chose a book for grandma or chose a book to read of some sort and I think we are treasuring this and and I every now and again I get a little down on reading and all these electronic devices and all these heads down on. On, on phones, what have you. But recently I was in the United States on a bit of a holiday, and I looked around and I was amazed at how many kids on planes were there with books, not electronic devices, books that you don't need to plug in, you don't need to reboot, you don't worry about a computer virus or Russians hacking them. And there seems to still be some <laughs> passion for books. And I, I think this is something that there It may be millennials who are picking it up, but I think there are other people who are willing to pass that from one generation to the next and again, that's what Brian Prince tried to celebrate, whether they were selling you a book or they were hosting an evening where you could meet an author, hear a reading, hear the passion behind those words. I think there's still a market for that.
1: So if you were we got a minute left here, if you were starting a small business, if you had a small nook in the wall building somewhere and you were going to start Marvin Ryder's whatever mm-hmm. Do you have to know exactly who you are going after, whether it's age, whether it's demographic, all those kind of things? Because once upon a time, I bet back in 1989 when they started, they figured we will get book buyers, period. Now I'm wondering if you have to be way more specific if you start a business.
2: So let me just give you a different example of another Hamilton business. There's something called the Other Bird Restaurant Group, starting by a lovely woman named Erin Dunham. She's just finished her MBA at McMaster, but she's been opening restaurants before this, all small restaurants. They only hold 40, 50 people, each one aimed at a slightly different niche. So far, I think she's up to seven of these. Uh, she's not making a lot of money from any one of these locations, but each one that she's opened has had a very specific niche in mind, and they have each been very successful so far. She's got another one. I don't want to give too much away. She's going to open another one on James Street South in, in uh, partnership with a local area band. Should be very interesting to see where it happens in the next little while. Watch for this, but she's very successful at finding these niches. Those people who want to serve everybody all the time, they're just doomed to fail.
1: Marvin Ryder from the Nagroot School of Business. Always appreciate your time, sir. Thank you for this.
0: Anytime, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900-CHML.
1: A few years ago, I worked with someone who, whose elderly mother was quite ill. And so more than a few times, my colleague had to rush out of the office for some kind of emergency or even a few times because they thought that her mom may be about to pass away. It was a difficult situation for a couple of reasons. A, because obviously of the emotional involvement, but B, because it's not convenient. It doesn't happen at pre-assigned times and it dragged on. And it went on and on. This was a, an elongated process that this was going on with. Well, if you have an elderly or a sick parent, or even a, someone else in your family doesn't have to be elderly, who is living with some sort of illness or some sort of severe disability or something else, and you are partially or mainly on the hook to care for them. You probably understand that scenario. How do you balance your work, your life? your looking after them, your caretaking. Some jobs are very flexible. You can walk out whenever they say, hey, go ahead. Don't worry about it. Just do your work when you get a chance and that's fine. Others, you can't run out on a moment's notice. If you're a doctor in the middle of surgery, for example, you can't just very well drop the scalpel and say, oh, sorry, my parent needs me right now. There are jobs where you just can't leave. So what should be done in our society about this problem? Because there are lots and lots of people, I believe, I think it's pretty common that this comes up. Dr. Allison Williams is a McMaster professor who's also the chair of the Canadian Institute of Health Research, uh, the chair in gender, work and health. She's been studying this. She's been looking into this. What should we be doing? She joins me now. Dr. Williams, thanks for doing this today.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And that's quite a scenario you set up there and uh, very much the case with many people as far as trying to manage these multiple demands.
1: I was going to ask, I mean, am I correct in my suspicion that this is actually quite common?
3: Well, we all have elderly family members, right? If it's not our parents, it's our godparents. If it's not our godparents, it's our siblings or aunts and uncles. There's always family members that seem to be in need of informal caregiving, also known as family caregiving, because our our public system just isn't meeting the needs as it once did back in the 1970s. So now there's a call for family members to chip in and, and for the most part carry the brunt of the care. In, in Ontario, for example, caregivers have been recognized as being the backbone of the healthcare system. And it will only become more and more like that given again our increasing aged population and our uh, increased uh, uh, need for restructuring the healthcare system.
1: Well, okay, and so with that being the case, and with so many people now facing this, the utopian, the nice, perfect view, I suppose, that everybody would like, especially when they're in this situation, would be to simply say, to have the employer tell the employee, you know, go home, do what you need to do, stay there until your parent, husband, wife, whomever, is either better or unfortunately passes away. And once this situation is dealt with, you can come back. I don't get the sense that's very realistic, though.
3: No, unfortunately it's not because this, uh, the whole idea of accommodating caregivers isn't a requirement currently in our labor, uh, in our labor sectors. So as a consequence, it's really a voluntary um, option to accommodate caregivers. And certainly we know that large, uh, large companies are generally much better at doing this because they often have deeper pockets and they often have a human resources department which um, benefits and facilitates this sort of accommodation. Smaller companies and family-owned companies don't have that kind of flexibility, and we know that the vast majority of companies in Canada are small to medium-sized companies. So generally, this is not an offering um, provided to employees across the country. Again, unless we're talking about large companies and often very specific sectors such as um, the financial sector, the pharmaceutical sector, and the, uh, 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 the, the, uh, technology sector. So those are the three sectors that are really most representative of having this option available. But for the vast majority of Canadians, it isn't an option. Um, and so they have to rely on federal programs. So we have our compassionate care benefit. We uh, also have a number of provincial programs, again, that vary depending upon which provincial jurisdiction, um, An employee resides but for the most part it's a it's a a private matter it's a family responsibility and so this is why um, we need to to really speak to the importance of uh, of employers stepping up and doing their best to accommodate if at all possible because we're all going to be in this position at some point if not multiple times throughout our working career uh, and it's useful for uh, for employers to consider guidelines that they could potentially incorporate to accommodate employees who are caring for family members at home. And so together with the Canadian Standards Association, we've created a set of these guidelines, which are basically generic um, uh, uh, directives which employers can and cannot um Choose to implement depending upon a what works for them, and what size uh, of a company they are, or um, uh, also what what sort of demand they have for uh, employees wanting to to change things up with respect to managing their workplace uh, uh, tasks and responsibilities with their their caregiving tasks and responsibilities.
1: And well, but the conundrum that comes out of this, though, Allison, is that. Again, you're talking so many businesses are small businesses in this country, and we know that we've just gone through the minimum wage argument where so many small businesses said, look, we can't afford to even go up to 14 or $15. And now, if they are going to be told, you know what, and also you have to give this person paid time off uh, to go and look after for an extended period of time, The it's a tricky one for those businesses. It's, I mean, it would be lovely if it was simple. It's not simple though, is it?
3: No not at all and currently it's not a requirement it's just voluntary and again these are just guidelines that are available for employers to consider um, I think you know what employers will find is um, is that if they were to incorporate accommodations for caregivers they'd probably see um, a much more loyal workforce they'd probably have much better retention they'd probably most likely have an easier time recruiting they may likely even be nominated for various sector or industry awards, given, again, the workplace friendliness that they would be showing. We also recognize in the research that there's higher productivity. There's also lower absenteeism and a much stronger work ethic with respect to a sense of community and loyalty to the workplace.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML.
1: Chatting with Dr. Allison Williams about companies giving time to care for sick, elderly, failing family members, people who are caregivers. How do you do it if you don't have a necessarily a flexible situation at work? And, uh, Doctor, okay, so you are, I mean, it's very clear you're very passionate about this, and that's great. There are a couple things I want to ask you, though, from the business perspective about how you would deal with this. And the first one is... Should there be time limits? Should there be some kind of limit on this about how long you could take? Is a company fair to say, we will give you time, but it's got to be within some sort of specified amount?
3: Yeah, great question. And, um, you know, the idea of taking a leave from work is, is really only one uh, accommodation that a employer could potentially provide. There's all sorts of different accommodations from, for example, starting work early and leaving work early. Um, so still putting in the full seven to eight hours yep. of work per day, but changing things up as far as the start-end time. There's also the idea of job sharing, where an individual could uh, could work half hours and share the job with another person. There's also the idea of flex time, uh, work from home. There's also uh, different options, such as working part-time for a certain certain amount of time and then going back full-time. So there's a, a wide range of opportunities for accommodating a carer. Uh, and again, this is something that ideally is worked out one-on-one with a employer or an HR representative and an employee. Um, and, uh, certainly recognizes the importance of coworkers being involved as well. And so it's a very sort of co-created idea of finding the ideal scenario with respect to what's going to work for any carer employee. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, we're all going to be in this position at some stage. So getting coworkers on board to cover as needed or to share jobs or work together to, um, uh, uh, to follow up with, uh, various responsibilities is something that I think we could all recognize and, and contribute to in and rec- noting that we we will will we'll all be in this position at some stage.
1: This may be so, a this may be a colder one though. But okay, is a company entitled? If I were to come forward and say I got to look after my mom, I got to look after my wife, whatever else, is a company entitled? Should they be able to say we we'd like to at least have some proof that this is legit? Is that cold? Is that mean? Or is that fair for them to ask to establish that this really is the case?
3: Well, certainly the federal government does that very thoroughly uh, with respect to individuals who apply for the compassionate care benefit. The federal government requires that they not only produce um, uh, evidence of being employed full-time for an extended period of time, but it also requires that a, uh, a medical certificate be um, be provided to support uh, the the uh, argument that the individual who's being cared for is in fact um, requiring uh, care. And in the case of the compassionate care benefit, it, it basically requires a doctor's signature that specifies the individual who's being cared for um, has only so many months um, left to live. So I don't think at all, um, you know, it's, it's not inappropriate at all for an employer to ask for some form of evidence around the individual um the individual caring responsibility.
1: Yeah, you I mean it, you want to be trusting of your employees, but I mean you also want to believe that they're doing the right thing and, and that brings me to the other one. We, there are te- and I don't know if what the rules are still cuz I know it changed a little bit. But for the longest time teachers who didn't take sick days through their career were able to bank them and then either take cash or take that time off when they would retire or leave. Would that be something would that be something companies should do? to have that available to say, you know what, if you don't, because we know there are people who are going to be leaving or are going to be making life, you know, maybe putting a little more work on you. So if you don't end up taking these, we will give you something at the end for the time you didn't take to balance things out and make you feel like you you weren't left holding the bag in some ways. Because I, I can believe that in, some, in certain circumstances, if my coworker, was gone or gone a long time or gone a lot of the time for three or four months or something, I may feel like, come on, this is, I'm carrying all the load there. Should there be something for those who don't get this?
3: Well, I'm not sure. You know, I think, you know, it's not about who gets and who doesn't get. In, in my mind, I think it's, it's about making the workplace culturally accepting of care responsibilities outside of work. And so, um, as I mentioned earlier, we're all going to be in this position at some point. I mean, we all know in the workplace now that not everyone has young children. So consequently, they don't necessarily need to take um, emergency day leaves or family day leaves or whatever the case may be. Um, similarly, not everyone is going to have a caregiving responsibility to tend to at home. But it's likely that we all will at some stage in our work life have one, if not more, uh uh caregiving responsibilities. So it's recognizing that um we have you know the workplace has to have the flexibility to accommodate as needed. Um and I, I do understand your point with respect to coworkers feeling resentful. If an individual is, for example, getting accommodation, whether that be starting early and leaving early or working flexibly or working three out of five hours. Um, at home, or whatever the case may be. Um, there may be some resentment that, that, that's built up, but it certainly is the supervisor, manager's, or director's responsibility, HR director's responsibility, to be sure that the culture of the workplace recognizes that this is an important issue if we are, in fact, going to keep the investment in the workplace. That is the investment we've made in employees' training, the investment we've made in employees' Um, uh, uh, experience to do the job as well as they're uh, they're doing it, and so again, it's it's about facilitating that change in the in the culture of the workplace to recognize that caregiving is real, and caregiving is something we uh, we need to to respect and accommodate, um, recognizing again the demands that the system is making on families, and being sure that. Uh, uh, family members are cared for in the community at home.
1: Dr. Allison Williams, uh, McMaster Professor, Canadian Institute of Health Research Chair in Gender, Work, and Health. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for your questions. great.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML.
1: There is uh, there's a lot of stuff I want to get to today. But I want to start with this because I thought it was a really interesting point that Nazem Kadri made. He doesn't always make interesting points, but he did in this one, uh, leaf forward. He was saying that he really is not a fan of the NHL playoff format. And his point is three of the best teams in hockey are in the same division, which means Boston, Toronto, and Tampa. One of those only is going to escape from that, that division to move on You're not going to have a semifinals even of those. And I, you know, I don't disagree with them. I don't, I I would be very, very happy to go back. If you're going to keep the two conferences, that's fine. But on each side have, well, no, not the two, uh, have one versus eight on each side. You got 16 teams in total in the playoffs. Have the top team play the eighth team. The second team play the seventh team. It seems to me that Dawn makes the regular season worth something. Why in 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 the current situation, if I'm the Leafs, if I'm the Bruins, if I'm the the Lightning, I'm not benefiting much from having a great season because I got to play a great team right off the bat.
4: Well, there's two things. Um, first of all, it it uh, it seems to suck a lot more when you're one of the three in the same division, um, and the Blue Jays used to have that argument all the time. Sure, when, they did when they were in with Boston and New York Still. and Toronto and. You know, maybe and when three, Tampa was any good. Yeah, maybe three of the top six teams in baseball were in one division. And I remember years ago when um, Florida wasn't that good, and nor were the Lightning, and the Carolina Hurricanes were the top team in their division and would get a, get a bye and because they had they were in the right division. And so it kind of has a tendency to work itself all out. Now, the old theory was that you have divisions so you could build rivalries uh, geographically. Now, Buffalo's not in Toronto's geographic area, apparently, so they're not in the same division. But uh, (laughs) But they're
1: so far from the playoffs, it doesn't matter anyway. They, won't, they wouldn't be in the playoffs in the AHL this year.
4: They might not make the playoffs in our league. <laughs> um, but I think now, I mean, that used to be important to the draw. Pardon me and everything else. But now everybody goes by charter. And getting from here to there is no big deal. I mean, the Leafs can play in Carolina and come home and play the Rangers the next night because I've been on, I was on an Oilers charter. And I'll tell you, there isn't. If there's another sport that travels better, I you'd have to show me because I can't believe it. I mean, it's unbelievable how they're treated and, and how easy it is to get around and and everything else. So I, I think your idea of going from 1 to 8 makes sense. I did hear an argument two weeks ago that there's nothing wrong from w- going from 1 to 16. I would be more
1: even in favor of that. I mean, do we mm. really...
4: Is, is it Does it really matter to
1: anybody that there's a team from the Western Conference in the finals and a team from the Eastern Conference in the finals? Or would it
4: not be better just to have the two best teams? Well, it, it would be. But I, I, I do suggest that there's an argument that um, the Leafs should not be playing Anaheim in the first round. And it used to happen. The Leafs used to have to play L.A. and they'd play a three out of five. But I think if you're going back and forth uh, with a three-hour time difference – you do start affecting the marketing and everything else. Like Anaheim and Toronto don't need that rivalry to sell any tickets anymore. But, okay,
1: so, so maybe once every, when you do the one versus 16, you have one or two of those series, but the other ones work out. I mean, uh, maybe a few years it works out perfectly, maybe a few years it works out terribly. But, I, I'm again, just looking at these, at these playoffs, if I'm Tampa, who's had a wonderful season this year, I think they're still first overall, I haven't even checked, but, I mean, they've had a really good year what's the what's the advantage to them that they are going to they may get a, a not huge opponent in the first round but then they're going to run into either Boston or Toronto in the second round Boston and Toronto have both had really nice years they could run it they will run into into each other probably in the first round
4: well and then you make the argument that you know you've got to beat the best team sometimes so you may as well play them right off the back and get them out of the way yeah but I, I agree with you you're gonna to have to beat a good team but I there's got to be some benefit to
1: you to winning or doing really well in the regular season. You got to get in the playoffs, so you have to have a good regular season. But then for that next step, if you're a great team, you should have an advantage in the playoffs. You should have, and, and Home Ice, I mean, Home Ice, yeah, Home Ice advantage. I get it. I want the regular season in any sport that I'm watching to really matter because game number 76 of the season or 55 or whatever, I want all these games to mean something. In the NFL, they do.
4: Yeah, well, and they do, and they do in the NHL too. But you're right. I mean, they, I, I think the best you'd see is one versus eight, and I don't, I don't see any reason you can't do that because the entire East is in the same time zone, and even the West is in the same time zone because you got Chicago and Nashville, Detroit, Winnipeg, Detroit's in the East now.
1: That's true. They, 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 Thank you. Yep, that's right. Detroit moved. I'm so, yeah, I know. I'm so used to having Detroit in the West. That it's, it's now close uh, to yeah. Windsor. <laughs> yeah, they they moved the whole city over just to cross into the Eastern time zone, so they could. But put they're it not
4: in, in with uh, they're not in with Toronto. You know,
1: there's a lot of things about the NHL, but this one I, I, again, I just I, I, I think Nazim Qadri has this one right. This is this is a a silly system. There's a better way
4: to do this, and they have done it before. How come he never brought it up when the Leafs weren't that good? Or did did it just dawn on them now? Well, it may have just dawned on him now, but <laughs> of course it does. It dawns on you when you got a good team and you got to play Boston in the first round, who are equally as good. That's when it dawns on you. Uh, sure, sure. I, I have I no doubt the, about that. I have no idea why the NHL don't call us to solve more of these issues.
1: There was a time when it was one versus sixteen, or one versus. Was it one versus sixteen, or was it only sixteen teams? Was it one versus eight then, or one versus twelve, or whoever got when in? When I, I first don't started remember.
4: watching, it couldn't have been one against sixteen. No, it couldn't have been. They all got in. But I remember when they doubled the size of the league. Yeah, well, it's been a while. Nineteen sixty-seven, the last year the Leafs won the cup, and the next year they added six teams. Imagine if they added. Imagine if they doubled it this time.
1: Again, which they're, hopefully they're not going to.
4: Go to 64. Because go to
1: 64, but said but did what they did in the original six and said, but all the new teams are in one conference and they get 16 playoff teams. <laughs> the rest of the league, the established league, would go nuts. I'm amazed they got away with that back in the day when they said, okay, you know, all those new teams, yeah, you guys, one of you guaranteed will be in the finals.
4: I, I can't remember. Uh, you've got the computer in front of you. They, they probably bought those teams for half a million dollars.
1: Maybe if that, yeah, if that. Anyway, I, I'm I'm with Mc, I'm with Cadre uh, on that one. I would l- I would love to see it go back. Simply, I'd love it to be one in sixteen. Really benefit from having a good season. And if you sneak in, you are going to have to plow your way through to get uh, to get anywhere in the playoffs. I, that's the way it should be.
4: Well, the last time the Oilers were almost in the playoffs, they were the eighth seed in the West and played Carolina in the final. That uh that TV juggernaut that it was. So can Canada because we had a Canadian team. I'm sure the US weren't all that pleased with it. But I think it was on that network that uh, Gary Batman had had invented though, the Omni network or whatever it was. Mm. Strange
1: league at times, isn't it? Yes it is. It's a strange league. They do stuff. We I mean we've we've talked about the replay thing they can't sort out. The day after they have their general managers' meetings, they have and they discuss goalie interference. They have another goalie interference call that no one knows what it was or what it wasn't, and it's just a strange little league that uh, has like would be. I mean, I love it. I love hockey. I, I, but boy, it's it's amazing they have fans. Sometimes when you look at the way that the league does stuff, they do have fans. Everyone loves it, but they but man, they try to well, make it difficult. Well, you know,
4: one thing that they haven't changed, and and uh, since the forward pass mm. across the center red line that doesn't exist any longer. What well, they took out the rover is that yeah they you know they've now got five players and a goaltender so the basic structure of it's the same, but they, they used to have six players and a goalie yeah the rover yeah yep. they um well the the, the um, also also the uh, goaltender never used to wear a mask and had hardly any pads on, and the referees skated around with a coat on so there's been some upgrades but they're they do they do struggle and they. They micromanage the game, I think, when they shouldn't, like the goaltending thing. Like, just leave it alone. Let the referees do their job. That's always the thing. We always got to tinker.
1: We've always got to tinker, and, we've always, and then we make things stupider. Yeah, you, you think you're doing a good job, and then... If you were to go back, honestly, if you were to go back in the NHL and reclaim the rules that were in place in 1980, I'm picking 1980 out of the thin air, but sure. 1980... You'd probably have a terrific set of rules that would work just fine. You'd have the playoffs, as we're discussing, that is one versus 16. Yep. You'd have no goalie interference stuff. You'd have, there'd be so many things where you would just say, yeah, that, you know what, that actually works better than micromanaging and now creating new things that we don't really know how to deal with them.
4: Some of the, some of the changes they've made, I think, have really opened the game up, though. You can't, guys just a hook a guy and ski behind him on the back check. Just get towed along and slow the guy down and there was interference all over the place. I mean, they really have opened the game up. It's 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 damn near too fast. I mean, if you're down at ice level, if you can get to the Air Canada Center or any NHL arena and sit at ice level and see how fast things happen out there. I mean, you can't tell it from the after you're up twenty rows. Certainly can't tell it on TV. The, the speed of the game is unbelievable. Phil Esposito used to take two and a half minute shifts. Yeah. Now oh, they Dre- take thirty seconds. Gretzky
1: shifts. did too. Yeah. Gretzky did too. We'll take a quick break. Oh, there's also not much more punching in the face.
4: <clears throat> well, there's
1: uh, well, there's no fighting. That's what I mean. It's
4: th- that's too bad.
1: And there's no more good nicknames. <laughs> Ogie Oglethorpe. <laughs> yeah. You know. The nickname thing we talked about this the other day the nickname thing died and that's that's a that should be a requirement that anybody who covers a team now for any media outlet must create one memorable nickname for someone on the team they cover and if you have three or four people covering a team. You'd you're w- you're well on your way to finding something that yeah. people can. The days of you know, when the Philadelphia Flyers had everybody with a nickname, and the Canadians, everybody in the Bruins, everyone had a nickname. Those were
4: great. Yeah, Mad Dog Kelly,
1: <laughs> Mad Dog Kelly, Hammer, Big Bird,
4: Dave the Hammer. Show. The,
1: you know, when the best fighter in the league is the Hammer, that you are on. You're in a good league when you've got a guy. You know, I could think of how it could have gone with nicknames. I mean, if you miff, if, if you whiff on the nickname. It sticks with you forever, and it stinks. But they, there have been very few whiffs in hockey. They generally have, Hound Dog Kelly was a great one, Hound Dog, you know. And again, Dave the Hammer Schultz and the Road Runner and all these. They were all great names. We need, we need to assign people to start coming up with new names.
4: Yeah, but somebody come up with Scratchy, and everybody want to know why. <laughs> and, oh. Scratchy, <laughs> itchy and scratchy. That was. They're
1: off the air now, too. Holy Mm, cow. Scratchy. All right.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML.
1: Don, the Edmonton Oilers, your favorite team, stink. They are back where they often have been in the last number of years. With a one-year exception, they are back in the lottery, and they are not having a good year. And I'm not being mean. That's just the reality. However, they have this one guy on the team number 97, Connor McDavid, who's not bad, I'm told. He's an okay player. He's got 99 points right now. He will, I think he's got 52 in his last 26 or something. I mean, it's some ridiculous... Gretzky-like. Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, he's just been great on a truly abysmal team this year. Baseball, generally, with one exception, Andre Dawson back, I don't even remember what year, has a policy that if you are not on a good team, you're not considered MVP caliber to win the MVP award. Would you consider Connor McDavid for the NHL's heart trophy for the MVP, even though his team is awful? Of course. It's a silly comment. No, because he, he didn't, the argument always has been that if you were that good, your team would be in the playoffs, your team would be in contention. You'd do something to make your team better. How can you be the Will most you-
4: valuable player, valuable to who if your team is in, right near the bottom? Well, you asked me what I thought, so I told you, and I don't know who makes the argument, but I don't agree with them. I mean, if you're the best player in the league, you're the best player in the league. I don't care who you're playing for. Is he the best player in the league? Here's how I think you define the best player in the league. You let all the general managers in a room bring a Ben of Coors Light in and say, okay, you can pick whoever you want to start your franchise. Who is it? That's the best player in the league. I would say the lion's share of them would say, I want Connor McDavid. That's a pretty good place to start. You sometimes argue that you need a great goaltender, and I don't think you can win without one. But there have been years when somebody might have said, it's Cam Talbot, it might be... You need a hot goaltender in the playoffs. Right, you need. but you, you, you can win if you get a hot goaltender in the playoffs. But if you have the absolute very best player... And I would suggest to you that the the most general managers would take Connor McDavid right now to build their team around, and Austin Matthews would be in the conversation, but it would be Connor McDavid this year, so that makes him the MVP of the league. I mean, everybody. I I love Sidney Crosby. Sidney Crosby is an outstanding playoff performer. We're not sure how Connor McDavid is going to stack up in the playoffs, um, but it's it's not picked on the playoffs. It's picked on the regular season. The the part I find interesting about the Edmonton Oilers is Bob Nicholson comes in and takes over the franchise, immediately uh, um, takes credit for the new building and all the wonderful things that have happened in downtown Edmonton. I actually know very well how almost all of that happened. But in any event, you bring in Peter Chiarelli, and they decide that there's some deficiencies in the room and on the ice. And one of the guys that they unload is now an MVP candidate. A Taylor Hall. In Taylor Hall in New Jersey. So when you continue to repeat, your, uh, repeat yourself and expect different results, then... Yeah, it, the argument, as I say,
1: in baseball, the argument always has been that if you are the most valuable player, it's impossible to be the most valuable player when you're out of the playoffs because you're of no value to anybody, really, because your team didn't win. So how could you be the most valuable person because there's no value when your team is bad. That, that's always been the argument they've had, and, and it has extended to hockey over the years. It's been very, I, I'm trying to think of who was the last MVP who won off a team that had a really bad year. There have been teams probably that have missed the playoffs, but off a really bad year, I can't think of the one. Well, I guess
4: the argument is how bad would they
1: be without them? Well, there is that. They would probably be right down with Buffalo. You'd have Jack Eichel and Connor McDavid once again. Well no, McDavid wouldn't be there. But you'd have yeah, Edmonton and Buffalo would be right there with each other. I mean he has been I think he's been involved in forty five percent of Edmonton's points this year. So he's he's clear. So I guess that
4: brings that that poses the question how bad are the Edmonton Oilers or how good is Connor McDavid? How good would Connor McDavid be on a good team? Oh if he had a winger like Brett Hall, um if he had an all star winger. Just one. Well, that's what they tried have, to do. Heaven that's,
1: heaven forbid he have two. But that's what they tried to do. They thought that a guy like Lucic was going to come in. Now, he's not Yari Curry or Brett Hull-like, but they thought, oh, we'll put him, maybe maybe he plays
4: onto his line, maybe he becomes the guy that... Well, he's a big power for that w- that could protect them as well. Yep. Now, since that, fighting's gone. Yeah. Right? And Lucic is only making about $75 million a season. He's got 24 more years to go on his contract.
1: And I think he has 10 goals this year.
4: And where'd he come from? Boston. Who brought him in? Trillie. I, I mean,
1: I would, if I had a vote, I don't have a vote. If I had a vote, I would be voting. I don't know if I'd be voting for Connor McDavid. He'd certainly be in my conversation. He'd certainly be in the conversation. But there have been some other guys who have had a terrific year this year as well. Wouldn't that be ironic if Taylor Hall beat him out? That would be... I'm sure the Edmi- humorous. Uh, uh, no, the Edmonton Oilers are going of Edmonton. The Edmonton Oilers are will send fruit baskets to everybody who votes to make, Just do not vote for Taylor Hall, and if you do, just make sure that a few, enough of you don't. That would be humiliating. That'll right. be humiliating for the Oilers franchise that already has suffered its share of humiliation. If a guy they traded for a stay at home defenseman who's been hurt and mediocre. Ends up winning that award. Uh,
4: the guys, I feel bad out in Edmonton, and there's some good guys in that group. I mean, Kevin Lowe's a uh, a pretty good guy, and and is uh, still there. And but, you know, they've brought uh, Gretzky in. I mean, they've they've they they probably lead the league in um, outstanding alumni on their board or on their inner hockey so operation in
1: for an alumni like game. a Paul coffee, out yeah. There for now. the for the alumni game, the Oilers are uh, are the favorites
4: sure <laughs> problem is they're not playing any alumni game and for Bill and the here's MVP. the bad part the alumni team might give this team a run they could they it, it's amazing to
1: me that with connor mcdavid on your team that you can still be this bad and that and that goes back to the point about mvp i i would seriously consider connor mcdavid if i had a vote but i get the point is that if your team is this awful can he really be all that valuable? He's valuable enough that you wouldn't want to like put him on waivers. So <laughs> you might you might want to get something for him. I understand that point. Of course, well, my do you,
4: do you, who do you think? If you use my scenario, I don't think you offer an opinion. Who would be the first one taken? If you, if all the general managers in the NHL, not excluding Scott Radley. If all the general managers were put in a room and said, you can pick anybody in the league to start your franchise with, who is it? And there's 31 teams right now. I bet you
1: that 25, say, Connor McDavid. Well, at that least. makes him at your least. MVP, no, 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 it? it makes him, no, that makes him your best player. But That's not MV- what the MVP is? MVP is, on a year-by-year basis, who was the best player this year. Connor McDavid is unquestionably the best player in the league. And he's leading the league in scoring. He is. What do you want? Blood? I I would I would say that third twenty five of the J- GMs, at least at least twenty five would take Connor McDavid. I bet you there would be a couple, as you said, who would take a guy like Carey Price, who would say, you know what, we're going to build from the goalie out and have the best goalie in the league because the goalie is the one position that can truly affect the game throughout the entire game. I don't know if any more anybody would take Sidney Crosby, and and here's the other and thing. that's an age thing. Uh, yes, that is an age thing because once upon a time, and now look, it's a whole different argument if you're going to have a discussion about all-time players. I mean, that's a stupid one. We'll do that one someday. We're not going to do it today. But a draft, an, end, an any year, any era draft of who you would take—that we can do that someday for fun. That's not what we're talking about, though. But I mean, it's—it is. The, the question becomes like, okay, Connor McDavid is first in scoring. He's got 99 points. Is he your MVP? Is Kucherov? who's with Tampa, who's had a great year. Is he your MVP. He's four points behind. Malkin has had a great year. Nathan McKinnon is probably the guy I would vote for out in in Colorado because he's been great and his team has turned around dramatically. But but is there any question McDavid is the first guy anybody would take? No, there's no question.
4: I remember I saw a funny quote on uh, Facebook. through Maybe a, vote for Phil Kessel just for fun. through Bob, <laughs> A quote from Bobby Orr, but I'm going to change the story because I live this other story. After a celebrity golf tournament that I used to run for the Tim Horton Children's Foundation, um, after we'd won the Allen Cup, and Bobby and, and Blake Hull both played the year before, and Blake won the Allen Cup with us. And Big Bob or uh, Bobby Hull would always make as many playoff games, as many games as he could. It was fun to have him around. And we were sitting around having a couple pops after at the at the Duck Sports Bar in Dundas, and a guy came up and sat down with us, and, and Bobby Hull was very engaging. I, I, I may have told this. Um, and looked at him and said, so in today's era, so this is 1988 when Gretzky scored 27,000 goals one year. said, how many goals do you think you score in now in the NHL? And he went, I don't know, he said, maybe 25, 26. And the guy looked at him and he said, really? He said, I'm 47 years old.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Ba-boom. Don will be here all week, folks. Try the veal.
0: The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.